before we gather around the communion table today, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll look at verses 5 through the end of the chapter, 5 through 18. Message entitled, The Warrior King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Oh, Lord, as we look at the scripture, I pray that we would grow in our worship. That as we, we read in the psalm today, that we might learn to make your name huge, that we might magnify the Lord. Because we'll never plumb the depths of your love, your beauty, your grace. Lord, help us, to Lord, to live out loud and reflect your grace and your love to those that are around us. Lord, give us understanding of your word today. I pray that I might be a spirit-filled teacher, that each one of us might be spirit-filled listeners, that we might be obedient to the word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. A couple weeks ago, we studied angels, wonderful, powerful servants of God. And the Jewish people who were believers you couldn't hardly get something greater than an angel besides God himself. And their story, if, if you take the angels out, there's not a lot of Old Testament left. You took all the stories about the angels and their power and all they did as, a serv- as servants of God. And these people who were Jewish people, some of them were thinking maybe they might return to the old system because they were being persecuted and forsaken even by their own people. Somewhere on the edge had not committed their lives to Christ yet. And so the writer of Hebrews returns to this subject that Christ is greater than angels. And the question is, well, how could a human be greater than angel? How could Christ become flesh and still be greater than angel? And so the explanation here is four reasons why Jesus is not inferior because of his humanity The fact that angels are ministering spirits without human bodies would seem to give them an advantage over Jesus who had a human body while he ministered on earth. Today he has a glorified body. We see that even in the resurrection stories, how he would appear here and there and he could pass through doors and yet he could sit down and eat with them and drink. The writer gives us four reasons to explain the Lord's humanity that it's neither a handicap nor a mark of inferiority. Number one, verses five through nine, his humanity enables him to regain lost, man's lost dominion. God created man to rule on this earth. He created him to rule. And yet, because of sin, we've lost that. In Psalm 8, four through six, and that is what the, the writer is, is quoting here. It says, but one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You've appointed him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. In Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28, this is God speaking. He said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to those humans, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But we have a problem. It's obvious that man today is not exercising dominion over creation. Man can't even control his flesh. He was supposed to control the fowl, the fish, the animals, and tend the world as a garden that God created it. But sin entered in, and man fell. And the proof, every man sins, every man dies, you're born in sin, that's what you are, that's what you do. Sometimes you look back in your own life before you came to Christ. Somebody said, I wonder why I did all those things. Because that's who you were. You were a liar, therefore you lied. You were immoral, that was your thing, so you were just immoral. You were, went after drugs and alcohol, that's who you were. Now you're a new creature. Christ has conquered death and sin so that you can live in victory. See, before you couldn't help it, you had to sin, that's who you were. Sometimes I talk to believers, or people who say they're believers, and they may talk to you. They want you to kind of do this in their life. Oh, yeah, I understand. That's okay. I understand. And so they think they come to us, to me or to you, and, and you'll give them the sign of the cross, and that makes everything they do okay. They're looking for you to say, oh, yeah, I understand why you're so wrapped up in your sin. Remember, Wallace gave us this testimony. One of the things that hit him so hard was that as an all-pro wide receiver, he was invited by his quarterback and, well, a couple quarterbacks there that knew the Lord to go to a special uh, conference they put on. It was an opportunity for these football players to invite all football, other football players they knew that didn't know the Lord, so they hear the gospel. And the one thing that really impacted Wallace, he's a single man in the NFL, and he had a lot of opportunities to sleep around with women, so he took those opportunities. And one of the young men that was there talked about holiness, that if you're in Christ, you have the freedom not to sin. You don't have to sleep around. You can live a holy, pure life. And that kind of blew his mind. It's like, wow, I don't know if that's possible. But you know what? It's not if you're not in Christ. But that got his attention. And eventually, he began to see that he was lost in his sin. There was no hope for him apart from Christ. And he came to Christ, and Christ cleansed his life the Bible says, as many as received him, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God, even to them that trust in his name. So you may look at the gospel and say, well, you know, if I could change my life, I would do it. I'd be glad to follow Christ, but I can't do that. No, you can't. But Jesus can. You see, man on his own can't even rule his own life. How come? Because you're a servant of Satan. If you don't know Christ today, if you're not part of God's family, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. When man fell into sin, angels began to rule. And Satan took that place. And the Bible says all of us were sons of disobedience before we came to Christ. You say, oh, no, no, nobody tells me what to do. Oh, yeah. Your flesh tells you what to do, and so does the devil. And he hates everything God created, even the people that hate God. He hates them too. And Jesus said about him, he's a liar 
and he's a murderer. He just wants to destroy your life, however he can do it. But you come to Christ, you get new life, you get the DNA, the spiritual DNA of Jesus Christ, and you don't have to live that way anymore. Now, as a believer, you can choose not to sin. You can rule in this life. You can rule over yourself. That's the power of the Christian life. Jesus had power, and he demonstrated that power, not only himself by living a sinful life, but also over creation. In the temptation, we first see that Jesus went 40 days without food, and he was tempted by the devil. And the Bible says there in Luke that he was with the beasts in the wilderness. Now, there was a fellow a few years ago in Alaska that thought he would join the bear family, and he did. He became dinner. There are some pastors that even teach that we're, we're already living in the millennium. Uh, no, we're not. Uh, there's pretty clear teaching about the millennium that the lion is going to lay down with the lamb. We don't put lions out to pasture with bears and lamb. Or lion. We don't put lambs out with bears and lions. They will eat them. They are dinner. When that cartoon first came out, that, that film, The Lion King, and we saw all the animals kind of working in harmony. And, and there were some bad animals. But for the most part, they're all one. What you, why is that? Why do we rejoice when we see something like that? Because God has put that part, kind of eternity in our heart. Because that's the way he created things to be. But when sin came in, so did destruction. The Bible says all creation groans to be redeemed. And one day... The warrior king, our savior, Jesus Christ, is going to redeem the earth back to its original creation. And he's going to rule and reign. And then the child will play at the hole of the poisonous snake. The lion will eat, lay down with the lamb and he'll eat grass like an ox. And no one will do harm in all God's creation. Jesus ruled over even the elements of the weather, didn't he? Remember, he was out in the boat and it looked like the boat was going to be capsized and he was asleep. And the apostles woke him up and they said, Lord, don't you care we're about to die? And he stood up and he calmed the winds and the waves like that. And then you know what happened to those disciples? They got really afraid. They got really afraid. Who is this that controls the winds and the waves, it is the one that called them into being. Isn't that amazing? The control. He spoke the worlds into, into being. He rules over them. And he became flesh that he might restore us to the place that he intended for us in the beginning. That is to rule and reign. And the Bible says, those that are faithful, you trust Christ as your Savior. You're faithful in this life over a little. He's going to make you ruler over much. He used that in Luke chapter 16. He has the illustration of the unjust steward who is kind of cheating his master, taking more than his due. So the, he said, his boss said, hey, get your affairs in order. I'm going to fire you. And he thought about it, right? And he said, hmm, I better, I'm too old to dig. I better have people be nice to me. And so he went out, he went to the folks that owed his boss money and said, how much you owe the boss? 100 measure of wheat, right 50. And Jesus commended, or the, I should say the, that master commended that unjust steward because he was wise. And Jesus said, many times the children of light have less 
ability and less wisdom when it comes to material things than the world does. And what did he say about that? He said, use your money, use the things God has given your hands so there'll be people in heaven to welcome you. Just like that unjust steward had people welcome you, welcome them into his home so he wouldn't starve. You'll have people welcome you to heaven because you minister the gospel to them. Then he says this, very, very important. So if you're not faithful in that which is in others, everything in the world belongs to God. It's not yours, not your wife, not your husband, not your children, not your money in the bank. It's all God's. You're called to be a steward. But if you're faithful with that, the Bible says right in that passage, if you are unfaithful with that which is not your own, who will give to you the true riches which are yours? So in heaven, you'll have a perfect mind, perfect body, and the opportunity of those eternal riches to start over and be found faithful for all eternity. And it says there in verse 9 that we're not there yet. We, it says in verse 9, for, in, for verse 8, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But we now, we do not see all things subject to him. And he's not going to talk about Jesus. He's talking about human beings. In the book of Revelation, it says that he saved us to be kings and priests unto God. We're not there yet. But verse 9 says, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The offering of the life of Christ, his shed blood, is sufficient to pay for every sinner and every sin that was ever committed, including the worst criminals that ever lived. It was, it was enough. It was precious. It's that valuable. The Bible says in 1 Peter that we were redeemed not with corruptible things like gold and silver. A lot of churches say, well, you pay a little bit more money, we can get you out. The Roman Catholic Church thought up an idea. A fellow, I think his name was John Sebastian. They needed to refurbish the Sistine Chapel, so he came up with an idea. It's called purgatory. And then indulgences. And so the way you get out of purgatory, and listen, that doctrine says everybody, no matter who you are, human beings all have to go suffer for your sins. It's that old lie that Jesus' death was not enough. And so you die and you go to purgatory for a while until you've suffered for your sins and then you can get out. Or John Sebastian said, how about this idea? And he had this little saying, as soon as the money is heard clinking into the changer, the offering box, a soul flies away free to heaven. So if your mom dies... You don't want to think about her suffering for her sin. And the old medieval art, what was it? It was these demons gnawing on people in purgatory. Well, you want to get her out of there, right? How much are you going to cost? Well, the priest decides. I don't know if you've ever gotten a letter like that. Some of my close friends did. Their son died at a young age of cancer. And they, had, they, were, they were born again people. And they got a letter from one of their Catholic friends. That we have paid $500 to the priest to pay for a young man's soul to get him out of heaven. Is that possible? No, the Bible says it's not. It's not possible. And the Bible says in Psalm 50 that it's impossible because the cost of a soul is so much, you can never redeem your brother. So you might as well cease trying. But First Peter gives us the answer. We're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold by precious blood of Christ. It's only his blood. 
And it is sufficient for all sin of all time, but it's only proficient in those that trust him, those that will submit and come to him. We see Jesus. That was his battle. That was his battle. To die for us on the cross. And when he died, even before he died, he suffered death because he was separated from the Father. Doug Bookman so graphically illustrates those passages, doesn't he, when he's here? I love that message that he preached. The Old Testament, we have the picture of the Ark of the Covenant. And above the Ark is a holy God. And he's holy, so he's there to judge every sin. And in the Ark is the Old Testament, the law, to remind a holy God to judge every sin. Nobody gets away with anything. God's not going to forget. He will judge sin. See, whether O.J. Simpson is guilty of, of murdering his ex-wife, God knows. And nobody's getting, you may get away with it in his life. You say, well, how come those people get away with it? The psalmist in Psalm 73 said, it seems like some of those wicked rich just get away with everything. No, no, no. Not get away with, with God. But then Dr. Bookman reminded us of the old hymn by Robinson. This said, there's, the, there's God, the holy God, there's the Ark of the Covenant, and then there's the mercy seat where Jesus interposed his precious blood. What a thought. He won that battle on the cross for you, and when he died, just before he died, and dismissed his spirit, he said in John 10, no man takes my life from me, but I'll give it up of my own accord, and then I'll take it up again. The Bible says, Jesus cried out the, war, the, the words of a victor in Greek as a Greek runner would cross the line after a marathon. Tetelestai, it is finished. The work of salvation was finished at the cross. It was all done. Then the Bible says he pillowed his head and dismissed his spirit. He won the victory at the cross. And then he went to Hades, not to suffer. The suffering was already done on the cross. He went to Hades to declare victory to those spirits that had been chained because they were so wicked. They wanted to destroy any opportunity for Christ to come through the line of human beings to be that sacrifice. And he declared the victory to them. And he said, you lose, Satan loses, I win. It was, it was predicted clear back in Genesis 3 after the first couple fell. The prediction was one day through the seed of the woman will come a Messiah who you will bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. And Jesus did that. One of those powerful pictures to me in Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, is when Jesus stands up after praying and sweating, as it were, great drops of blood in the garden, and he stands up and a snake is there and he crushes that snake. That's our Savior. That's our warrior king. Don't feel sorry for Jesus like somehow something happened that wasn't supposed to happen. He went to the cross on purpose. It's the purpose for which he was born, to take our place. He went to battle. He set his face as it were a flint to go to Jerusalem, to suffer those things on purpose for you and for me. His humanity enabled him to regain man's lost dominion. Secondly, verses 10 through 13, his humanity enabled him 
to bring many sons to glory. It is fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus was somehow a sinner. It just means that he was examined and he was developed through his sufferings. Just like when a young man wants to prepare for football and he goes to the gym. He may be as good a football player as he can at 14 or 15, and he may have all kinds of natural fast twitch muscles and the ability to hit hard as a 13-year-old, but he goes into the gym. Why? So he can stress and strain those muscles and become full and entire, lacking nothing and ready for the gridiron when there's the opportunity to play. Jesus was developed even more by suffering. He says the same thing about us that follow. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, by, by faith we understand that we're justified, and, and so we don't have to be ashamed because God cleanses us from sin. But Paul says, not only this, he said, I glory in tribulation also, because tribulation works patience. And patience, experience, and experience hope. And hope makes not a shame because the love of God is spread abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's given unto me. He gloried in tribulation because why? That's what developed Jesus also. And it proved who he was because in the trial he never failed. And he suffered those things that he also might be a faithful and a merciful high priest. It says in Philippians chapter 2 about his glory that he earned in this victory. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Christ is united to us. We are united to him and we are spiritually one. We are his brethren. The, the, wrote, the writer quotes Psalm 22, a messianic psalm in which Christ refers to his church as his brethren, which means we and the Son of God share the same nature and belong to the same family. What a marvelous grace. And it's so powerful for us to remember that because we look at ourselves and we say, well, who am I that God would think about me? But he did marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Thirdly, verses 14 through 16, his humanity enabled him to disarm Satan and deliver us from death. Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he likewise himself partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their life. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. You see, he had to become flesh. As we studied angels, we saw that angels never die. Some are evil. They fell away. And they live on, and they'll live on for eternity in hell where God prepared for the devil and his angels. But angels never die. So in order to take our place, because man died when he sinned, in order to be a sacrifice that the Father would accept, Jesus had to take on human flesh. He couldn't become an angel. He had to actually die. And all these liars that get up in pulpits 
and say, well, he didn't really die, he just kind of fainted. Don't understand the scripture. He died. That is the gospel. First, First Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Paul says, in case you've forgotten, let me give you the gospel again. That Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. And was witnessed by the disciples and by up to 500 other brethren. Jesus died and was buried. He died for his sins. He had to be a human. He came to save humans, and so he had to be humans. He didn't come to die and save angels. The word annihilate here doesn't mean to do away with, because obvious Satan is still alive. The word means to render inoperative, make of none effect. Satan is not destroyed, but he is disarmed, so that you don't have to sin anymore. Paul talked about that in his testimony, Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and following. He said, it is my desire to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable even unto his death, that it means I might attain to the power of the resurrection. What does that mean? Jesus gained the power over sin in his resurrection, in his death and resurrection. And we also can live holy lives. We're not going to be perfect but our desire is to please God and we can separate from evil. When somebody comes to me and says, you know, that's the way it is. You know, my daddy had a temper, my grandpappy had a temper, so I just have to lose my temper. It means you don't believe the Bible. He didn't come just to give you a ticket to go to heaven. He came to make you holy so that God is not ashamed to be called your God. So even though he saved you, you just don't stay there. You're called to be like Christ. He died that you might be conformed to his image, that you might be Jesus Christ and reflect his holiness and his grace to those around you. That's what people are drawn to. When they see your life and they say, well, I mean, I know who you are. How can you change? Did you drink the Kool-Aid? Huh? So they say, oh, you, oh, you must be deluded. You must be on some kind. No, no, no. That's the change that Christ brings because when you receive Christ as your Savior, you become like Him. And you might say, well, you don't know. I, I, I know what the Bible says about this or that. I, I know what the Bible says about marriage, but, you know, I just can't stand it anymore. I know what the Bible says about not sleeping around, but, you know, I'm a guy, so I just, you know, you know I know what the Bible says about anger, that the passion of God, the passion of man doesn't work the rights of God. But, you know, I just got to lose my temper because, you know, hey, it was wrong, and so I have to lose my temper. No, no, no. We're to be like Christ. And the believer comes to the word of God and understands his sin. And he agrees with God. He confesses that what God's word said is right and what his life is demonstrating is wrong. But he believes also. If we confess our sin, that God is faithful to just and forgive us our sin. And what? To cleanse us from all unrighteous and make us like Christ. That's the hope. He died to give us victory to make us like Christ that you might be that clear reflection of Jesus Christ to those that are around you. Fourthly, verses 17 through 18, his humanity enables him to be a sympathetic high priest to his people. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. In the King James, it uses an old English word, he is able to succor, to, to be able to bring aid and, and help and strength to. You see, a lot of Christians use the excuse, oh, well, that was Jesus. Or they'll say, well, that's the pastor. Well, the pastor has to be like that because he's the pastor. Or the deacons or the elders. Or you look at somebody else that, that really is living a victorious, godly life, say, well, I can't be like that. They got a special, something happened to them special, and that's what makes them like that. No, no, no. Jesus had every single temptation that you and I have, and yet he chose righteousness every time. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, you probably have it memorized already by me repeating it all the time. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Maybe you're outside of grace right now and you think, I would, but I know I can't do it. God doesn't expect you to do it. Paul talked about, it's Christ, it's no longer I, but Christ that lives in me. Because when you receive him as Savior, he changes your want to. You don't want to just get by on what you can do. You want to please Christ now. That's the desire. That is your life. And because he suffered everything and yet without sin, you can come boldly to the throne of grace and find help in time of need. And it's in those trials where you are faithful, 1 Peter chapter 3, that people will ask you about the hope that lies within you. All this, this lies, this health and wealth gospel that you just trust Jesus and everything's going to be perfect after that. No, no, no. You're going to help fulfill and fill up the sufferings of Christ. They, the world can't get at Jesus anymore, but they can get at his people still. And you get to be a part of the battle. Your part. And your part, my part, is to be found faithful in our time and our place. And when we're suffering and we're still standing true to the Lord and we have peace and we have joy in that, people will say, what is the hope that you have? That's different than me. And then we'll have the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. The word there, come to the aid of, in, in the Greek is bontheo. It literally means to run to the cry of a child, to bring help when it's needed. Now in the Martin family, there's always lots of babies around, and we really like it that way. But one of those babies gets hurt, and everybody's like, hey, what's going on, right? We're running. You hear your child cry. And moms know the difference. If they're just mad because somebody took their toy away or they're hurt, and boom, they're right there. God is the same way. He's the same way. He's always there. He's always there for, to, for you to call on. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Even though you walk through the valley shadow of death, you don't have to be afraid. You can be afraid if you want. A lot of, a lot of Christians are motivated by fear. They're listening to Rush Limbaugh, and they're seeing all these things go on. It's, oh, it's going to be terrible. We're going to lose our freedom. They can never take away your freedom in Christ. It's just going to be your opportunity to be involved in the front lines, maybe. The Bible says about those Christians in the Old Testament, you're going to find in the book of Hebrews, we come to it, chapter 10. They gladly... They gladly enjoyed the confiscation of their property. They say, well, how could they gladly do that? Why? Because they found that Christ was more precious. It was more precious. 
Angels are able to serve us. Many of us, they kept us alive until we could come to know Christ as our Savior, sent by the Lord, ministers of salvation. But only Jesus can help, help us in overcoming temptation from sin because that's what he did. He overcame the temptation. When Jesus Christ became man, he did not become inferior to the angels, for in his human body he accomplished something the angels could never accomplish. And at the same time, he made it possible for us to share in his glory. Now, here's something. He is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Are you ashamed to call him Lord? You know, for the believer, for the true believer in Christ, that is your living. That is what you live for. And if the Bible says something, you don't say, yeah, but. You say, Lord, help me. Lord, help me that I might be faithful in the place and the time that you've called me. Counseling for the believer is a pretty simple thing. Somebody's struggling, and you say, well, this is what the Bible says, and that's what they've been looking for. What does the Bible say about this? And you show them what the Bible has to say, and they say, all right, in a discussion, let's do it. God, help me. You have an unbeliever. You tell them what they need to be doing, whether it's a trouble in their marriage or trouble with, with the flesh or, or trouble with fear, doubt, and what they say, well, give me some more counseling. How about some more counseling? Maybe you feel better about this. No, no, no. The Christian soldier who's following their warrior king just says, what does the Bible say? Those are my commands. Father, I pray that you would give us the grace to be found faithful. Stir us up to follow very close behind our warrior king that one day we might hear from Jesus, well done, faithful servant. And then, Lord, we'll turn and give you all the glory. What a day that will be when my Savior I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me to the promised land. What a day. What a day that will be. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us. For fighting that battle only you could fight. And winning it and offering it to us. Lord, I pray if there are any here that don't know for sure that you are their Savior. Lord, that today would be the day that you would give them the faith to be able to trust you and you would draw them to yourself and we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.